source for Big Ten Talk. It's off tackle Empire. Welcome back to Off Tackle Empire, the only podcast that's going to give you the the view of Big Ten football that's not just how does this affect Ohio State. That being said, we are going to start with some things that are Ohio State related. Once again, I'm Steve Braun, and uh, that's Andrew Kaszewski, and <laughs> and uh, yeah, the uh, the tide rolled, and what else is going to roll here is a win fight tribe rooster of the week, which is Better Life Choices IPA by Atwater, which is a uh, a nice session IPA that's really good for reflecting on uh, on on really how you're spending your time and hoping that between now and college football season's next kickoff, that maybe we choose to spend a little less time doom scrolling and uh, maybe maybe even choose to. Um, you know, get the country vaccinated so that we can actually go to college football games again. Here's to better life choices. Yeah, a very fitting choice for this inauguration day, which, uh, you know, you we were discussing before we got started that, man, it's like, it, this has to be the most powerful season of seasonal affective disorder that we've had in recent memory. Like, it hasn't been all that severe of a winter, like in terms of cold or snow, but it does feel like the clouds, they're, uh, they're sure up there, aren't they? Uh, all the time. And Yeah, because ironically, uh, even though the winter's been fairly mild so far, you of course can't go anywhere, or at least you shouldn't. Right, right. Even more so than usual. Like it, you know, so it might as well be polar, polar vortex inverse hell. Yeah, like, honestly, well, like you'd, what's you'd, the almost difference? Rather, you'd almost rather, like I'd rather it be... You know, like full on, you know, your tauntaun will freeze before you reach the first marker outside because in this kind of weather, it's like, well, I could go outside, but why would I? <laughs> Tell you what, my hound dogs would uh, be a lot more businesslike of when I let them out in the back and be. Uh... Yeah, that's, the one, that's the one thing is the dogs have modified. So you'll be happy to know R2 now barks at people on 13 Mile, the road, the like the busy street a little bit, uh, like not just the people in front of our actual house. Or you know, like the mailman, I understand because he comes right up onto the porch. That's serious business. He also barks at people just walking by on the sidewalk. And now, once in a while, if he's at the window, he can see a busy street from where we are. He'll bark at people walking by on that street. Now I'm like, you get you a hobby, man. Like, and it's just why would you bother leaving the house? Because yeah, I'm really glad that the loud one, uh, Millie Hound, doesn't really use her eyes ever. Um, it's just exclusively her nose and. Fortunately, we have ways of making it so that she can't smell down the streets. She can't smell people going by on DeQuinder because we have windows and we close them. Yeah. So as we alluded to, the title game sure did happen. Um, did you watch this? How much of this game did you watch? I I mean, I was kind of casually watching it. Um, I think I tuned in a little bit after kickoff. And I mean, I definitely remember when Devonte smith had uh had you know what was what would basically be a program record for many schools for as a receiving day at his, his halftime stats in the first half yeah um so i i watched as much of it as i watched it basically until it was out of reach which you know there was a fair amount of time left on the clock when that happened i'll reiterate my perennial complaint that there's no reason at all for college football to play their title game on a sunday night 
on a Monday night. Monday night, rather, yes. And of course, the counter-argument is, well, they're not going to compete with the NFL. No. So what they should do is play it on Friday night, make it a primetime event going into a weekend. In normal circumstances, you know, bars would be packed. People would love to go out and watch that as kind of your big sports event of the month as sort of a pre-Super Bowl thing, if you would. But instead, they play it on Monday night, which just ensure, which to me would seem to put a ceiling on how many people can watch it. Because even if you're really interested, like we, I mean, unless it's a one-score game, there's no like who's going to be able to stay up and watch the fourth quarter? The game get the game's close to midnight by the time it's over. So I complain about it every year. It's never going to change. Because- it's, it's asinine. And when when you talk about, of course, I'm I always complain about getting further away from bowls as a fun thing and going towards more bowls as a means to a playoff where only one team season mattered. Like you think of bowl games, you think, oh, they take place on holidays. You you go there. The bowl game is your team goes away for the holiday to play an exhibition against some you know somebody from some predetermined region or whatever. Uh, you know, and if you're lucky, you get to play on New Year's Day. If you're really good, that's a big holiday with everybody watching. No, instead it's Monday night on a work day. <laughs> right, exactly. Because this is a business trip. Yeah, and that's a, I mean, actually, that's a good point. Is that it sort of feeds into the into the not the mechanization of this but and commercialization isn't the right word either because of course it's always been about that but but really the the assimilation of the assimilation of college football into a a national tv product that's just designed for uh casual people that aren't currently college football fans yeah that's really the distillation of that it's basically just like can we find a way to turn this into are they gonna? Might they explore a way to turn this basically into a sports version of The Bachelor? Like that's kind of where we are. Is like, how? Yeah, how do we? Turn- yes. Who's getting eliminated this week? Well, nobody <laughs> if they expand to eight teams. Yeah. Yeah. How do we turn this into a sports entertainment paste that will? Appear- oh, they even have a rose ceremony. Hey, hey that was a better analogy than I even realized. Um, so anyway, to talk oh, about yeah, actually enough, right enough grousing about the back the game to, to talk about the actual game yeah. So, Trey Sermon went down early, and this really like on a, yeah on the second or third play, and this really seemed to just spell the end for Ohio State. Um, it took the yeah it took it, the wind out of their sails. I don't think they ever. I don't think they would have won even if they had been at full strength the whole game. But I think they would have kept it competitive longer. They also lost Wyatt Davis. I think sometime in the first half. And with those guys gone, look, Master Teague's not a scrub or anything, but he's not. A, he's clearly not a difference maker the way Trey Sermon is, the way J.K. Dobbins was. And the offense also- kept up for a bit, but it always seemed like it was kind of like fighting at a level above its current power level, its, its true power level, you know? And I think the other issue was that it seemed pretty clear that Justin Fields was not entirely right from taking a dirty hit from Ben Skalski in the semifinal game. You know, the, the old helmet to the kidney thing isn't really something you bounce back from in a week. And we'll never know what his injury was. <laughs> yeah. If he was we'll actually never. injured or if it was just if it was just a very painful thing. But um he definitely he definitely wasn't his best self. Uh but again, you know, that being said, it were they really gonna be able to keep up? Because if you're gonna if you're gonna criticize Ohio State for the game plan in one aspect, defensively they clearly decided that they were going to take away the run game from Alabama. And as you said, that's 
you know, this year, all that's doing is you're, you're saying to the opponent, okay, Heisman winning wide receiver, you know, like the third, what is he, the third receiver to ever win the Heisman, third or fourth? Uh, why don't you beat us? And he's like, oh, okay, okay, fine. Devontae Smith will beat you by himself. That's that's entirely within. I mean, they they played the run to such an extent that for long periods of the game, Kerry Coombs, the defensive coordinator, is calling a 4-4 defensively. Like, it's that's not something you would have seen this century. Like, that, it's been 30 or 40 years since that was a reasonable defensive formation to play. And look, they made it really difficult for Najee Harris, sure, but that just means that all the ways that Steve Sarkeesian came up with to get the ball to Devontae Smith were that much more effective. And the lasting image of that game to me is of is of inside linebacker Pete Werner trying to cover Devontae Smith. Werner is a pretty good player. He has no business covering Devontae Smith. If that's something that should ha- that happens in the normal course of your defense, you have made a mistake. Yeah, like that's that play and and look who's lucky about that play is Sean Wade because if not for that play being burned into everybody's memory like just a why is this guy covering him and the poor guy because he's just got to sprint his heart out knowing that it's futile but he's got to he's got to give 100% effort <laughs> knowing that he's being shown like this but Sean Wade is lucky that, that that is everyone's lasting image because otherwise it's just you talk about draft stock. It's just watching his ticker go deeper in the red every second. Yeah, I um, I understand that he's still going to get drafted pretty high. He's still a promising prospect, but it's pretty clear that he's better off as a slot corner because that, yeah, that's you know nobody's going to remember it because it, we're at the point where even the semifinal games pretty quickly fade into your memory. But he got abused in the Clemson game too, uh, and that's that's something that people are going to notice because. Uh, Cornell Powell, I think, was the guy's name. He's a good wide receiver, but nobody's going to mistake him for DeAndre Hopkins or Sammy Watkins, the other Clemson elites that they've had. Like he, every NFL team's got or even T Higgins. Yeah, every NFL team's got three or four guys that are that good. So I, yeah, unless unless teams look at him as a slot corner, and I don't know how you spend a first round pick on a guy like that. So well, certainly if you had a first round grade on him, you're you're definitely not taking him if your division rival took Devontae Smith. Oh, no, for sure. Uh, but that, again, that's not to say that he's not going to have a good career because you think about the Ohio State corners that have gone to the league recently and, you know, Marshawn Lattimore, Denzel Ward, like there's just no end of one guy after another that's a foundational defensive piece. So anyway. Um, I mean, Ohio State at the end of the day played, I mean, it, Clemson was a, a decent passing team. They were more built around the run, um, you know, and play action passing and such and so when Ohio State was so able to take that away from them it was really a a, a a big impetus for the offense to just kind of get ground to a halt but the only other particularly good passing team they played was full power Indiana and yeah. they gave up a bunch of points to them yeah they gave up 35 in that game sort of a back and forth thing it is to be fair to Ohio State and this is something that I saw brought up during this game towards the end of it, and I think also in other games, although not in other Alabama games, just, you know, other football games where we're talking about Alabama, this Alabama offense was actually marginally better than last year's LSU offense, which, and that right there will tell you the relative amount of attention that we're nationally paying to sports this year versus last. It just doesn't hold a candle to it because last year you would have thought that Ed Ogeron and Joe Brady 
and Joe Burrow had reinvented the sport of football. Like they developed the forward pass or something and they deserved all the credit they got because that was an incredible offense to watch. But Alabama was better this year. And yet again, like I expressed this at some point over the season, I don't remember exactly when that this Alabama team, and maybe it's just because I'm not paying as much attention or consuming as much media as I normally have, but it feels like they somehow like the greatness of this Alabama team was not as much commented upon. Like, They've had worse teams get more attention. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, you compare it to the attention LSU got last year. Remember, LSU hadn't won a national title since 2007, and has Ah. this that was only their third, you know, since 2000. So, like, they're an insurgents, right? They're not somebody that's always doing this. So it was it was not only were they breaking records, but they were doing it while not being Alabama or Clemson or even Ohio State. And that's really all it takes for somebody to be an underdog these days. It's like the Cinderella stories. It's like, yeah, somebody might get to the point where they get close to playoff consideration. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the best you can hope for is, you know, somebody that hasn't won it for a while getting to win it. (laughs) Yeah, if, if like a Penn State or an Oklahoma or a Georgia breaks through and wins, yeah, they'll probably get the same. That's a fantastic point. So it's like, you know, so basically... Nobody really wanted to write, you know, breaking news, Alabama, Alabama really good. good. <laughs> yeah. You make a fantastic point. I, I can't. Disagree. I really think that that's that, that between that and the whole, there were a lot of other things to pay attention to uh, this fall, uh, this past fall. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. That, that definitely sort of tamped down the hype. But I mean, also, I mean, I guess there were really only the couple of occasions where they were challenged. Um also true, yeah. I mean, started by Ole Miss for a bit, but Georgia that was more of a Lane yeah. Kiffin story. Yeah, and Georgia was closer than it looked. They pulled away at the end, but yeah, that's true. I mean, it was it was. I guess it's hard, you know, because they've been really good and really dominating for so long that when they ascend to an even higher form, it's kind of like, well, what's the difference? You were you're always this. You're you know you're always much farther ahead of the rest of the field. So anyway, enough talk about the tide. Um, we'll pivot now into what will be the rest of this episode, which is sort of a team-by-team season recap. And so what we'll try to do here is give kind of a snapshot of where we think the given team left off, give you a little bit of a preview of who, you know, how much they're retaining in terms of key players. Although it's tougher to find that information than I would have thought. I tried to do, I mean, I spent a while putting this together and it's, it's hit or miss as to whether there's good information available. And of course, you know, by the time we publish this, there'll probably be another half dozen guys declare for the draft or transfer. It'll all be out of date anyway. But. Yeah, I mean, you surely did yeoman's work because I'm just thinking back, like, just in the last, just this week, uh, two Illinois players decided that they were staying. I mean, yeah. so that's changing all the time. That's why I think, you know, you're going to, you, you probably yeah, so have a hell of a time. Uh, right. And so I tried to balance this between being thorough and acknowledging that as thorough as I might want to be good chance this information will be bad anyway so so really what we're trying to do is how is everybody positioned going yes. into the offseason and next yeah, season yeah. yeah and then the other thing we'll do setting up context ahead of spring practice kind of throw you out a name or two from each team that we think based on either recruiting profile or depth chart situation is maybe a name you should keep an eye on for your team for a team you know for a rival for a team that you just have a casual interest in um and hopefully that'll give you a little bit of information to go on. So we'll pick up and kind of roll in from where we were and start with Ohio State here. So as is always the case, they're going to have a lot of guys going to the draft. I mean, that's the case every year. 
this year was sort of an interesting situation for them. They had so much turnover on their defense from the previous year, but they're still going to have, they're, they're once again going to have a lot of turnover on defense, even more so than offense. So they have a draft declaration from Tommy Togiai, who was in my mind, probably their best defensive lineman. I mean, you, they had a lot of guys who did different things, but Togiai is leaving. Um, Jonathan Cooper is a guy who really came on as a senior. He's going to go. The flip side of that coin is they are going to keep Haskell Garrett, their other big-time defensive tackle, and Tyreek Smith is also staying. Um, now, the linebacker situation is going to be pretty harsh for them. All four linebackers who have real game experience are going to be leaving. So that's going to I mean, there's going to be big-time turnover there. And then in the back end, we mentioned before, Sean Wade is moving out as well. And he's he was the only guy that was a d- definite high first round, you know, high draft pick back there. Defensively, they've got a lot of new pieces to find. I think if you're looking for relative strength, it's probably going to be the line because, again, they're keeping Haskell Garrett, keeping Tyreek Smith, and Zach Harrison, who got on the field as a rotational guy, looks like he's going to be the next terror beast. I mean, I don't, I don't think he's quite Chase Young. He might not even be a Bosa but he's going to be pretty close to that in the next year or two. So um, defensively, a lot of losses here. Offensively, despite losing Justin Fields and Trey Sermon, they could be in better shape than they might have been, though. Well, I mean, you never know what the transfer portal will bring. Um, It's a bit salty about that, but uh, the transfer portal giveth, the transfer portal taketh away. Case in point, from their 2020 freshman class, they now only have three top 100 receivers. uh, That's just... That's just brutal. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So they will have those guys as redshirt freshmen. Uh, no, 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 no. As true freshmen. Well, de- depending. Uh, who knows exactly how they're going to choose to count this. Although you you would expect top 100 players are probably not going to be in a position where they have to sweat out that fifth or sixth year. Um, and so, again, you know, the, the headlines here are going to be that Fields and Sermon are gone. Wyatt Davis declared as everyone expected. Josh Myers is also moving on. So their two best offensive linemen are gone. But – they got really good news in terms of NFL decisions on offense because Chris Olave is going to stay. Um, so is their, you know, their number one tight end, Jeremy Ruckert. Garrett Wilson is not draft eligible. So really their three biggest weapons in the pass game are all coming back. Um, left tackle Thayer Munford is going to use the extra year of eligibility. That's a little bit of a surprise. So really the question is just, are they going to be able to um, refill the battery in the backfield? And, as you might guess, they've got plenty of good options. Um, we, or at least I alluded earlier that, you know, Master Teague hasn't really had the feel of that big time lead back to me. Oh, well, look at that. Here comes Travion Henderson, <laughs> number one running back in the 2021 class, a guy who at least figures to be in the rotation right away. You know, maybe they keep Teague as the nominal starter and sort of rotate him in, but he feels like a guy who's going to be, you know, a Zeke Elliott, Beanie Wells type of instant. Big Claret energy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that has kind of a couple meanings, doesn't it? So I don't want to impart any of the off the field stuff to the young man. Uh, but in terms of talent, yes, that's the kind of thing you're getting from Travion Henderson. And it's just going to be a blast. Can't wait to see him running over my team for the next three years. Um, and then in terms of quarterback, uh, again, it's, it's an embarrassment of riches. So they're not going out and getting a top five national prospect from somewhere else. They're just turning to their own strategic reserve of blue chip quarterbacks. Um, when Fields had to go out last year, CJ Stroud was generally the guy who came in a little bit. 
Um, he's a redshirt freshman, or he was this past season. Again, who knows how we're going to count eligibility going forward. His classmate, Jack Miller, is another option. And then they've got an incoming guy in Kyle McCord, another five-star. So You know, the thing is, with how Dwayne Haskins did in the NFL, I would really love to see how Jeff George Jr. would have done under center for the 2018 Buckeyes. You, you tell me he doesn't toss at least 30 touchdowns and 3,000 yards. Yeah, it's it's possible. Although, I still wonder if... Haskins might have just been a product of like a, a malfunctioning culture there. You know, if I was a fan of an NFL team that needed a quarterback, I think you'd take a flyer on him. You're telling me you really don't want to put him on the practice squad? No, uh, Deshaun Watson's about to be available because everybody, everybody important in the history of the Texans has basically said, fuck the ownership at this point. But I'm digressing, doing NFL drama when there's plenty of college football drama and Big Ten drama. And that's what we're here for. Yeah, well, and so if if you're a fan of another team and you're like, well, why are you telling me about all these great prospects Ohio State is? Well, remember, really only one quarterback plays, right? So regardless of who wins the quarterback competition among Stroud and Miller and McCord, it'd be difficult to imagine all three of those guys sticking around. So if you're lucky, one of them tasty scraps, one one of those blue chip morsels might fall off the Buckeyes table and then the rest of us can fight over it like the, you know, the stray dogs that we are relative to Ohio State. So, you know who never really resurfaced anywhere or never really played anywhere else? Tate Martell. Tate Martell. Yep. The hammer (laughs) himself. Tate and hammer. Um, what did happen to him? I know he was at Miami for a minute. Well, then they brought in Derek King <laughs> and he immediately King, yeah. transferred. Although he wasn't starting before then. I can't remember who they had before him. Um, uh, it wasn't but, Brad. Yeah, there was a guy. No, before. I don't know. Um, but, but yeah, right, sure. He's another guy that, I mean, look, plenty of guys don't pan out, right? Um, okay. Let's keep this moving and talk about. The technically second best team in the conference last year, your favorite, Northwestern. Yep. So uh, Peyton Ramsey, I guess, is uh, was a one-year prospect. Um, I I guess I'm a bit surprised in that I just don't – I mean, I, I, I thought it was going to be at least another year. Kind of. Yeah, I, I don't know that he's got serious NFL prospects, but – it could just be that he gets to a point where he's like, I've, I think I've done basically what I'm going to. I need to get out of my life. I, who knows? I mean, maybe he's a practice squad guy for a year or two. And that's not bad money. Like, that's getting paid to be a pro player. So, yeah. Um, but they do have numerous other draft losses, likes of which they don't normally deal with. I mean, we knew about Rayshon Slater going into the season because he sat out the whole year. He's still coming up pretty consistently on mock drafts as like a mid first round guy. Um, Greg Newsom, their lead cornerback, declared early. Blake Gallagher, the linebacker, is heading out. So is defensive end Ernest Brown, um, wide receiver Ramad. Chuck Yao Bowman, who leaves right when all the announcers who cover the Big Ten have finally learned how to say his name. <laughs> um, safety J.R. Pace is heading out. And it appears likely that Patty Fisher is going to pass on the extra year of eligibility. I don't think that's official yet. So that's pretty considerable turnover for a developmental team Although, it, you know, they've historically done fine with replacing guys, especially on defense. But it's a lot of important pieces to lose all at once. Um, I would expect some real growing pains for this program next year. You know, they're at a point where they've got a pretty good group of running backs. Uh, the other thing, which I couldn't find any updated information on, is whether Riley Lees is going to take another year or if he's going to head out as well. Um, I think he's still got multiple years of eligibility left, but he's also been there long enough that, you can consider the NFL as well. I don't think he's made a decision on that, though, at least not that I could find. feels like he's been there forever, but maybe 
there's a point where he starts to blend into Austin Carr for me. He starts to blend into Austin Carr, who blends into Bennett Skoranek, who blends into Jeremy Ebert. I mean, all those white receivers kind of look the same to me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think part of the reason he is because he basically started playing a big role as a redshirt freshman. So those are the guys, you know, it seems like they've been there forever because they are relative to other players. Four-year impact guys are pretty unusual. Not to mention uh, the loss of the retirement of defensive coordinator Mike Hankwitz, who consistently, you know, punched above the talent level that he had there. And uh, I'm sure that, you know, because Northwestern has had a, a fairly stable coaching staff, his departure won't be felt you know, imminently and eminently and immediately, but that is still, you know, the end of an era. If we're talking about turnover on defense, uh, can't really have that conversation without mentioning him. And that's one year after they showed uh, Mick McCall the door. And so after going his first, what, you know, 13, 14 years in Evanston with the first, with the same two coordinators, uh, Fitzgerald's now had to replace both of them inside of a year. And no, he replaced he replaced the coordinator after a terrible 2008 campaign. The offensive coordinator, uh, that guy was Garrick McGee, and then he oh, fired that dude. I for forgot about that, Mick McCall. I mean, that's still over a decade with the same two. Like you don't. Yes, see it is in college football anymore. Like it doesn't. It really doesn't happen. Um, they did just make their defensive coordinator hire, which is Jim O'Neill. He was the Raiders' defensive backs coach. Couldn't tell you much about him. Um, you you kind of trust Pat Fitzgerald's judgment, but it's not like he's had to make a lot of these assistant coach hires. So and he did hire Garrick McGee, and he's you know, of the two uh, Big Ten coaches, head coaches that have hired Garrick McGee. One of them has now been fired for incompetence. So you know it's a coin flip there. <laughs> sure. Um, so anyway, I mean, it's still it's still Northwestern's second division title in three years. Um, there really was not much that was fluky about this one. They were the best team in the West for most of the season. Um, fair to say that a couple other teams were certainly thrown off track a bit by COVID. But still, despite having all the turnover, despite, you know, it, I think as long as Pat Fitzgerald is there, you have to feel pretty good as a Northwestern fan. And again, you you once more heard the the supposed interest on his part in at least taking interviews for NFL jobs. That still hasn't materialized. He's got a great agent. I don't know, man. Yeah, well, sure. But I, I don't think there was any talk that he parlayed it into a raise or anything. I mean, I think it's still a situation where they'll pay him whatever he wants. But um, I just... I, I don't know what it is about Pat Fitzgerald that would make you think he'd be a good candidate for an NFL job. Not every college coach who wins a lot is good for it. Um, and I, I have to, I, th- I have to think if he headed off to the NFL, it would be like when Nick Saban went and, and there's that legendary story of when Saban tried to make some out of shape defensive lineman run sprints. And the guy just laughed at him because he had a clause in his contract that said he didn't have to run sprints. So, <laughs> yeah. I'll or, never get tired of that story. Or but. like uh, or like John Beeline in the NBA, which I believe that we uh, discussed last week. Um, yeah. Or like it, uh, Lou Holtz in the NFL. Yeah, it, again, it, it feel, the stuff that works in college doesn't necessarily work in the NFL. That's just, I feel like if, if you want to go to that, you, <clears throat> you either need to be a guy who's proven you know you how to work in NFL locker room, like a Mike Vrabel, or you need to be an X's and O's savants a la, you know, Shanahan or Andy Reid or one of those types. Or the legendary quarterback needs to like you the most. 
Sure, that helps too. <laughs> um, all right, anyway. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So again, despite despite some turnover, despite um, in terms of both players and coaches, a little more uncertainty than they've usually had. There's no reason to think that Pat Fitzgerald's going to lose his touch and being able to navigate those things. I mean, they were they were Northwestern last year. They they were Northwestern. They did nothing surprising. They had a very good and ready-made quarterback coming in that uh, quickly became Northwestern and not sure if that's good or bad for him professionally. Oh, it's bad for it's for professionally. It's bad for him. No question about that. But um, yeah, they, they were Northwestern. And again, that they were Northwestern and they beat Iowa. Yeah. Mostly to good effect. And because of how weird last year was, we had a reversal of the polarity of the Northwestern Iowa, Michigan state triangle of shitty football games. So this year they lost to Michigan state and they beat Iowa who beat Michigan state. It's usually going the other direction, but um, everything was off kilter last year. So, all right, we got to keep this moving or this is going to be a three hour episode. Penn state. Um, some, uh, first of all, a coaching note that kind of went unnoticed. It, at least it wasn't that big of a deal in my media circles. Um, James Franklin cutting bait with, Offensive coordinator Kirk Sirocco after just one year, um, giving the keys to Mike Yursich. And I would probably give him credit for that, for acknowledging that, yeah, this just wasn't working. You know, Sirocco had had pretty good bona fides on paper. He was successful in establishing an offense at Minnesota. Penn State certainly has more talent available, but it didn't work. I wonder how that feels as a Minnesota fan to have have this other, (laughs) this team that you beat, that like you finally beat. To, to to have your we've arrived moment and then they they poach your offensive coordinator and then they fire him after a year. And they're like, no, we don't like it. Take take it away. It was like even if they are better <laughs> off now, it's gotta feel so stupid. And they just throw him in the trash can. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, did you have to? Like uh, <laughs> all right. So from a personnel standpoint, they got some big news on the draft front and that Jahan Dotson is coming back. Um I kind of figured after the breakout season he had, he's draft eligible that he would have gone, but he returns. Um, Pat Fryermuth, the tight end, is a big loss, but between Dotson and Parker Washington, they've got a really nice one-two combo at wide receiver. James Franklin also turned to the transfer portal to a much bigger extent than they have recently. So the two big, well, I guess the three big names that they added, there's John Dixon, a corner who started for South Carolina for a season and part of another. They add John Lovett from Baylor. He's a running back, the guy with good experience, and also defensive end Arnold Ebiketti. I hope I'm saying that right from Temple. So Ebiketti is probably the most important of those three because both of their starting defensive ends are moving on, Shaka Tony and Jason Owe. Uh, they, I think the importance of Lovett is going to be easy to understate, though, because their running back room showed a lot of promise last year but is very young. And with Journey Brown retiring, they're still in a situation where it's, you know, Novocaine or <laughs> Novocaine. No. <laughs> Novocaine. Lee. That's why that's why I got it wrong because Keybone Lee and Noah, so I kind of hybrided the two together. But they have a they have these very and Kaziah Holmes, also a freshman. So they had two true freshmen 
and a sophomore last year. Lovett's a senior. He'll bring a little bit of stability and a veteran touch to that. But honestly, it kind of gets them back to this four-pack of running backs where I honestly thought at times they were better last year when they only had one or two of those guys going because it allowed them to get into better rhythm. But again, that's just an opinion. Uh, yeah, it did seem like it did seem like for them that having a having having a rhythm was really more important to keeping the ball going. It, I mean, it was just baffling watching their offense grind to a halt with all this talent in the beginning half of last year. And I actually think that plays a role into why Jahan Dodson decided to come back because, you know, with Fryermuth, everybody knew what Fryermuth was before yeah. last season. He didn't really have that much more to prove. Um, Dotson, though, I feel like maybe felt like he had some room for improvement because he made some spectacular plays, but not, you know, he didn't really go off against any elite competition and maybe wants to say, all right, you know, maybe he was sold like, look, our offense is going to be better. We've got this new coordinator coming in and we're, we're going to, you know, and everything's going to be normal-ish next year. So, you know, definitely be a star. And there's a reasonable case to be made for that. I think I understand that decision more in the context of what happened to them in the first half of last year. Yeah, it's it's fair to say that because of the shortened Big Ten season, you know, before this year, Dotson really wasn't much of a feature in the offense. He was a very distant second or third banana to Fryermuth and Hamler last year. So it's perhaps fair to say that, I, I mean, I would guess if he went to the draft advisory board, they'd probably give him a mid-round grade because he's got the physical tools, but lots of guys do. So he's going to have the opportunity next year to return as the dominant number one option um, on what should be an improved passing game. I mean, really, the, look, their offensive line is going to have good continuity. They've got Rasheed Walker back at left tackle. Um, good experience across the rest of the line. Now, I mean, they're not as young there as they were this year. So really, the only thing that's missing for them offensively is can the new offensive coordinator get consistency and ball security out of the quarterbacks? And, and really, like, can they settle on a guy? Because I get the two-quarterback thing has its appeal in certain situations, and maybe you've got a backup that you want to have a package of plays for, but it, it's very disruptive, I think. I, I think your team tends to function better if you know who the leader of the offense is, if you know who's going to get the ball in a big situation. I just think the two-quarterback thing is really a, more of a deleterious effect than it tends to be a benefit. So if the new coordinator comes in, gets their quarterback situation straightened out, there's plenty available here for this offense to fly next year. I wouldn't be surprised if they are sort of a top two or three offense in the conference next year. They certainly have the talent to be. So if anything, yeah, you definitely say this would be a buy low option because uh, the value seems to be artificially depressed right now. Yeah. But you know, speaking of, speaking of a team that we're predicting to be excellent, what I recall about Iowa from our offseason predictions is, you know, we thought they were going to be really good because of the strength they had across the board on offense. And we, we commented, all they need is a good quarterback. And perhaps the thing that we should have omitted is, and they need to call plays that give him a chance to succeed. Um, at least for the first half of the season, they certainly were not that. They put themselves in a hole in the division race such that by the time they turned things around, it was too late. Um, and so now they're, you know, they're going to be losing, or at least I presume, I guess I, I guess I didn't confirm one way or another, but Alaric Jackson is off to the NFL. That's their left tackle. Amir Smith-Marset, their number one wide receiver is gone. So a couple of the big pieces of that offense are not going to be there anymore. And it kind of felt like a squandered opportunity for them to really have a top flight offense. And now they're missing a couple of the big pieces from that. 
Um, I, man, I still just don't see it with Spencer Petras. He got a little bit better as the year went on, but his pocket presence still didn't really seem to improve. And man, he's got about as much touch on his throws as Andrew Maxwell or like John Elway did. You know, one of the, one of the reasons that it seemed like he got better though, in my opinion, or at least from watching what Iowa I watch is that they started calling plays around like kind of basically just making it easier for him. Um, and that's only going to get you so far because I know it's not necessarily NFL as far as the, uh, the crunching film is concerned, but you know, most coordinators are going to see a guy do that and, and adapt. Like you don't have Lovey Smith in this league anymore. They're not going to just sit back and let you say, all right, Spencer, here's what you're going to do. You're going to three-step drop one, 1,000, two, 1,000, throw it straight ahead for 15 yards. Don't even look. There's going to be a wide open tight end there, right? Yeah. They're not going to be able to do that against everybody because even if they are getting those plays at, at, at that point, you know, what it, it's going to be clear to everybody what they were doing to try and have him be more successful. So he's going to need to improve and be able to do things that he didn't show this year in order for them to be successful in the, really what we're talking about beating Northwestern Wisconsin, um, and I guess to an extent, Minnesota, I don't know, whoever the hell is going to be good. Yeah, I think, I think for the time being, you can probably leave Minnesota and that team that's going to be relevant in the division race. Uh, they, to their credit, they did over the course of the year remember, oh, hey, Tyler Goodson's pretty good. Maybe we shouldn't ignore him for the whole fourth quarter, for example. Um, and so, again, the offense kind of got tracked a little bit better towards the end of the year. More losses on defense, though. They have to replace three starting defensive linemen who are pretty good, including – Man, Davion Nixon, I think, is one of the more underrated players nationally. That's a guy who feels like a surefire NFL success. Like, if, if your NFL team takes him in the second or third round and you've never heard of him, don't worry, you're going to be fine. Uh, because, man, that's the other thing I noticed. It, if you watched any of the other NFL games this this weekend, the Bills have a ton of Iowa players. Um, yeah. And lo and behold, they're good in the trenches and they're sound defensively <laughs> playing a lot of Iowa guys. Who would have guessed? Um, they're, they're very unspectacular in how they play defense, but that, that's the whole thing. If your NFL team picks up Davion Nixon, it, it'll be the kind of thing where if, he, if his success translates to the league, then you won't necessarily notice the plays he makes, but you'll notice when he's not on the field. I, th- I mean, I think there's a good chance for him to be – like Aaron Donald's not a fair comparison, but a disruptive interior pass rusher, like the, the likes of which you don't necessarily see more than one or two of each draft. Like I, I think he's got a chance to be that good. Now, if you're talking in terms of replacement for guys up front, I couldn't tell you who's likely to come out of it. Iowa's always got a surprise or two on their depth chart on the lines in particular. Um, it, the safest bet to me would seem to be John Wagner, a guy who they used basically as a pass rush specialist but they've had guys in the past who have filled that role who then sort of develop into more complete players as their career goes on. So that would be the name that I would think you should keep an eye on uh, for them. But yeah, we just kind of expect them to continue to be Iowa. Yeah. And that's look, as long as Kirk Ferentz is there, you can expect that. And <laughs> if, if when he retires, the thing happens that I think they all, all the Iowa fans we know seem to expect will happen and Brian Ferentz just takes over, it probably won't look all that different. So, I mean, there's certainly an indication that he's going to run the offense the way Kirk Ferentz wants it run. I don't know how – hold on. You know what? I'm curious. So 
So Phil Parker, the defensive coordinator, is 57. I mean, he could be there another 15 years. Uh, and Easily. They probably continue to turn unheralded recruits from the east side of Detroit and from random St. Louis suburbs into NFL players. Like, that's what will continue to happen as long as he's there. So, um, and look, you know, things could be a lot worse. They could be better, but they could be a lot worse. Speaking of could be a lot worse, uh, let's talk Indiana. So I know, given that they were within one score of Ohio State, that the temptation is going to be to think, man, we left it on the t- we left some stuff on the table. We could have been in Indy. We could have finally knocked off Ohio State. And I get that. But given what a disaster last year was, sort of from a global viewpoint, let's consider the things that Indiana did accomplish, okay? They take down Penn State. They take down Michigan. They, hey, even taking down Michigan State, that's something that historically doesn't happen more than once a decade. And nobody really doubts that if you had played Purdue, you would have beaten them by 20. Okay, so we'll give you credit for the bucket win as well. The the shutdown forecast official editor, not shutdown forecast, I was listening to them earlier. Wish we had their reach. Um, <laughs> the off talkle Empire official editorial position is that Indiana won the old Oaken bucket this year as well. So you're going to tell me they didn't? So they, they, of course, still have the one dragon that they uh, that they did not slay, which, of course, returns to its position on, up top, unobtainium mountain, to go and gloat at the player for, you know, I mean, because that's, that's the bonus boss. That's not really the final boss of the game. Um, that's the bonus boss that, at this point, that you're just not even supposed to be able to defeat. Um, yeah, no, what that is, is basically if you were to play Breath of the Wild and you decide to just ignore all of the game's warnings and go straight to the castle and try to fight Ganon right at the beginning, like in your underwear with a couple of tree branches to fight him. Like, sure, there are people who have enough skill to pull that off, you know, if you're playing the game. But um, for the most part, it's going to be a disaster and you're not even going to make it all that close to... Well, I mean... Oh. There's RPG bosses, right? They're like, you know, the super bosses that in order to be able to fight them on reasonable terms to where you can win, you need to be so absurdly overleveled that you can, you know, just cut down the entire final boss rush of the main game like a hot knife through butter. And that kind of rings true here because in order to be able to play Ohio State like year in and year out, like your level, you pretty much have to have your talent on a oh, we cut through Michigan like it's nothing. We, you know, yeah, like, yeah. yeah, you know, top 25, like like teams ranked number 20 just fall in one stroke of the sword like so many blades of grass. Like, <laughs> you have to be at that level. But the two dragons that they did slay, the two monkeys they did get off their back, they also got a great contrast of styles of catharsis game because there was the tension, tension, and then epic moment in double overtime to beat Penn State. And then there was the righteous justice ass-kicking of Michigan, (laughs) which the score wasn't necessarily terribly lopsided, but, you know, Michigan had no business being on that field with Indiana. And it Yeah, no, watching that game, that was a blowout that just didn't quite make it to the scoreboard. And that one had to be catharsis- (laughs) You know, yeah. it's like a like like uh, oh my god, what's his what's his face in a Christmas story? Just on top of Scut Farkas, <laughs> the bully, just beating him repeatedly in his face, and just oh, bam, bam, take yeah. that Scut Farkas, gosh, <laughs> just a stream of obscenities. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's a good analogy. Um, so looking forward, I mean, 
Indiana's in a pretty good position in terms of attrition. Stevie Scott and Jamar Johnson, I think, are the only underclassmen who go. They're pretty well positioned in terms of running backs. They've got you know, Samson James, um, David Ellis, uh, even Tim Baldwin, who showed up and had a couple big games for him. So they've got plenty of options in the offensive backfield. They lose a couple guys on the lines. Um, they did pick up a curious transfer. You know, Tom Allen hasn't done a whole lot with that. But Zach Carpenter, who ended up the season as the starting center for Michigan, is transferring to Indiana. And with Harry Kreider graduating, they do have a need for a new guy there. No, it's unfortunate for Michigan that these big name programs like Indiana can just throw their weight around. And I mean, what is what is poor old Michigan going to do about this? You know, Indiana comes calling. Guy's not going to refuse. Yeah. I, well, look, as, as much fun as it is to rub it in Michigan's face at every opportunity, something that we never hesitate to do. I do think it's fair that Carpenter was only playing because they had multiple injuries on the offensive line. Um, right. Artis, the guy who was their center at the beginning of the year, was injured the last few games, and so Carpenter kind of steps into the lineup, and he kind of wasn't great. I mean, the offensive line as a whole really struggled this year, and there were good reasons for that, which we'll get into when we talk about them. But still, a guy who ended the season as your starter – leaving for not only an in-conference rival, but an in-division rival, a guy who's going to play you a couple times in his career. That's kind of unusual and, you know, a little bit of a commentary maybe. Um, also just a brutal casualty for Indiana's all-name team status as Wap Fillier has flipped his last burger on behalf of the Hoosiers. He moves on. Um, crucially, though, they do retain Ty Freifogel. That's big both on the field and in terms of the name department. Yeah, so – Unfortunately, we didn't call them Whopper and Fries in time. I mean, a Whopper with Fries would have been the ultimate name for their receiving core, something that you just really want to stick your Penix in. But the Fries will remain. Yeah, and of course, we buried the lead there, as you mentioned, which is, you know, the pieces around them have shifted a little bit. But really, as long as Michael Penix Jr. rebounds from his ACL tear and is able to go pretty close to full speed next year, they should be fine. Um, I, I still maintain that this season for them really had the feel of 2010 Michigan State. And I, I'm very eager to see if they have the follow-up season that that MSU team did. Um, Best quarterback in the league coming into this year? Let's see. Name one you can say is definitely better. Definitely better, I don't think I can. Um, I, still, I still think Tanner Morgan is going to... Yeah, I mean, it was he had his first year with a new offensive coordinator. You know, Bateman was in and out of the lineup. Um, I think you could make an argument. I mean, I don't think there's definitely someone better than him. No, uh, no, I, I don't think there's someone definitely better. Man, the state of the quarterback in the conference is kind of dicey right now, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, because there's there's a lot of kind of <laughs> unclear situations right you now. You know what? If if he's healthy, I think you could give the nod to Aiden O'Connell as well. Um, but he hasn't been healthy. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, I, he's the guy I would take. And I remember I opined this towards the beginning of the 2019 season that if I, had to, if I could take a single player to build my team around, at that time I would have taken Penix because he was a redshirt freshman. I didn't really view him as much of a draft flight risk, and he's this big-time promising young quarterback. Could run a little bit, very accurate. Um I don't think my opinion on that's really changed. No, I, I think he's probably going to be the – he should be the preseason. Could you make a case for him as the preseason offensive player of the year? Easily. Absolutely. Yeah. Very, very easily. 
Um, yeah. How about how about this? Here's a thought exercise. Big Ten programs whose starting quarterback situation is pretty mm-hmm. certain next year. You have Indiana. I think Iowa goes there. I think Wisconsin goes there. Yeah. Um, Maryland goes there. Yeah, Maryland definitely goes there. I think Rutgers probably goes there because I believe Noah Vedral has another year. Um, although, I again, I couldn't nail that down either. Oh, I put Rutgers in the same boat, as in a similar boat to Illinois because Brandon Peters has another year, but, like, uh, getting uh, a new offensive to, yeah, coordinator. It's, it's a fair question. Aren't you going to try to do a little better? Yeah. So, um, okay. Yeah, no, I, I get that. Yeah. So, anyway, I'd get another reason why – it's easy to feel pretty bullish about where Indiana is. And I mean, if, if you're an Indiana fan, I'm sure the missed opportunity, you know, or opportunity cost is going to haunt you. But, you know, you talk about opportunity cost, profit is profit. And you're sitting there, you look at some preseason polls. I've seen Indiana as high as number 10, number 10, AP number 10 preseason. I mean, yeah, I think that's it, a fever dream. Right, exactly. So I know Ohio State's this you know, Hydra that's never going to go away. Um, there are worse places you could be. There are worse places you have been very recently. Okay. The other thing is Ohio state is Sephiroth and everyone in the conference is cloud. <laughs> Everybody has been personally hurt and challenged by this man. <laughs> yeah. But again, if you're going to go at him, you better not miss. <laughs> so. All right. Moving on now a team that's usually pretty close to the top of the league, but stumbled pretty badly this year, Wisconsin, a very underwhelming year for their standards, but very understandable in the context of how COVID absolutely warped their schedule. Looking forward for them, I think their short-term success is all about whether they find better weapons for Graham Mertz. He showed in some stretches last year that he could be, you know, sort of your best quarterback in the conference type of player. Um, Jack Cohn is off to Notre Dame, so that's really his only serious challenger. He's the guy. It's going to be his offense. But, man, they just they don't have much around him. <clears throat> they could potentially have decent carryover on the offensive line. The only guy who seems to have firmly made a draft decision there is Cole Van Lannon, who is going to go. Um, they'll lose Garrett Groshek out of the backfield, but – I express the opinion repeatedly that their highest ceiling is with Jalen Berger carrying the mail for them. Anyway, they lose a few other defensive guys, especially up front where Isaiah Loudermilk is going pro Garrett Rand is retiring Um, safety. Eric Burrell is off to the draft as well. They have a few pieces back. Um, Their linebackers should be really good. You know, they'll have Chanel and Noah Burks. They still have Keanu Benton on the nose and he is, I mean, their defenses over the last decade have been, absolutely at their best when they have a dominant nose tackle. They had it with Olive Sagapolu for several years. Now they've got another guy like that in Benton. As long as he's up front, you can be reasonably sure they're going to be solid uh, against the run. Man, Noah Burks was one of just like a number of times. I don't know if everybody else has had this going on or if it's just us, but Noah Burks was yet another one of the procession of names that at some point went, all right, I'm in the transfer portal. I'm transferring to Illinois. And then the next day they were like, uh, no, I'm not. Was he really? I didn't yeah, know. yeah, yeah. He he posted that he was coming to Illinois. And then I think it was maybe a week for him. And he was like, no, nope, no, I'm not. No. Nope. Yeah. Well, well, you know, of course, the problem is you are, you hired Brett Bielema at a point where he's been out of the league just long enough that there's nobody left on Wisconsin's roster who played for him. 
So like you're, you're not going to get the benefit of him saying, Hey, why don't you guys come over for a grad transfer year? Help me plug some of these holes. You know, we'll party like we used to. Uh, presumably he's not going to be able to make any of those calls to guys with Wisconsin. Cause he was, he was gone just long enough. None of those guys know him. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, I'm kind of laughing. That well, that's assuming that happens in the first place, which is a little bit of a stretch, but anyway, um, look, fair to say that their offensive line is going to be good. They have some really high level talent that's going to be working its way into the depth chart. You figure with Berger being healthy and a year older, he's probably their lead back. They use him in Nikia Watson. Maybe they get the running game back going. It's not clear if Danny Davis is coming back. And even if he does, he's not a number one on a good offense. They need to find better receivers. I don't know how long we've been saying that about Wisconsin. It's the one thing they can't get right. And it's kind of holding them back. Like they're good. They're going to be good enough to compete and often win the big 10 West. But without that vertical threat, they're not beating Ohio State and they're barely going to fare. It's barely going to be a 500 type of record in their bowl games. Like they're not going to win the big stuff without the big time playmakers out wide. And they ultimately, this is the the same narrative that uh, is exactly what I thought while, you know, Twitter was saying that, oh my God, Graham Mertz is the best quarterback in the Big Ten. Is he a real Heisman contender as he was demolishing Illinois? And I was saying, Wait a second, though. He's just throwing to tight ends and fullbacks. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, he might very well be good, but you turn up the difficulty level and he's going to need some more talented skill players than that. Yeah. And we just we didn't see it. And it's not clear where that kind of guy is going to come from. They're not the they're not the program that goes and brings in a bunch of guys via the transfer portal. They develop, you know, very few guys play as freshmen or even second year guys. So um, they're kind of going to be what they are offensively. I think that's going to be a team that has to run it excellently to have much of a chance of success. Well, the, the next uh, great white hope, I mean, as uh, Abradaris, right, was was he the guy from 2011 or was he newer than that? Um, he, I think he was still on the team. No, wait. I think by 11 he was gone. I mean, if you're talking – the year they had Russell Wilson, it was Nick Toon was their lead guy. Oh, right. I, I think Abradaris was already gone by then. No, I actually think Abradaris was not really playing much yet because I remember it wasn't that long ago that uh, Wisconsin fans were were just having conniption fits over the fact that he couldn't make the Packers roster. Um, well, okay, you know what? Now I'm curious because he's one of those guys. Like he played, I feel like he played a considerable role his whole time there. I know he was at least returning punts. Um, so let's see. He's 30 years old right now. So. Oh no, you're you're right. He would have been. Maybe he was just starting on the team then, and just wasn't in the big. Because, yeah. Well, anyway, that was that yeah, was the Packers. Packers drafted him in 2014. That's they drafted him. Apparently so. Huh. Um, that's what Wikipedia says. I, man, I thought he played earlier than that. I feel. I felt like he was on Wisconsin's team when I was in college. I guess not. I guess not. All right. So so yeah. I mean, basically, I bring that up because. Paul Christ was uh, the architect of that offense. He's had talented receivers before. He's going to have to materialize some. Yeah, I guess. Um... Your source for big and it's off tackle empire.